only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Into the Impossible, a podcast about how we imagine and how what we imagine shapes what we do from the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. I'm Patrick Coleman, and today we're diving into the ways in which our technology is changing our humanity and what we can do about it with Antonio Garcia Martinez and Douglas Rushkoff. Antonio is the author of Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley, which chronicles his turn away from a PhD in physics to Wall Street trading, a stint at the Y Combinator, and then being on the ground floor of Facebook's first advertising forays, with all the chaos along the way. Douglas is the celebrated writer of numerous books and documentaries on the relationship between technology and society, most recently throwing rocks at the Google bus. And he's also the host of the fantastic podcast, Team Human. Be sure to check it out. First up, our associate director, Brian Keating, in conversation with Antonio, followed by his interview with Douglas Rushkoff. Enjoy. And Antonio is visiting UC San Diego and the Clark Center on a, on a part combination tour and uh, also um, discussion of what life is like outside of science. So before we are outside of the, the physical sciences where he began his career as a uh, physics grad student at our sister campus, UC Berkeley, um, more than a decade ago. But he left it, and he went into a very different uh, form of technology. And I wonder if you can give a quick description of your world line, as it were, uh, where what, what brought you to, to where you are today. Right. So, Brian, as you said, I was a PhD student uh, at uh, Berkeley, changed thesis topics two or three times, and then uh, made the fatal mistake of reading Michael Lewis's first book, Liar's Poker, um, which uh, the same author who wrote Moneyball and the Big Short, um, which is uh, very much of an insider tell-all about what it was like working in finance. And, uh, you know, he wrote it as a cautionary tale, and to me it was sort of a siren song. And so I ended up somehow finagling a job at Goldman uh, right at the height of the credit uh, bubble Mm -hmm. and, you know, joined at precisely the wrong time and watched it. Blow up eventually in 2008, um, and uh, you know that it's a very common second home or you know home for for failed scientists to sort of land on Wall Street. In fact, most of my colleagues were basically uh, you know physical scientists of some sort or another who had wound up there. But um, I had one intuition. One of the one of the correct calls in my career was betting that tech would sort of survive the economic disaster that was coming, and so I actually ended up joining um, an advertising technology startup, um, which might seem a little strange, but at the end of the day, whether you're pricing credit derivatives or add impressions as a question of pricing human perception sort of at scale. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I worked in ads technology for a while. I founded my own company, a small company that went through an incubator called Y Combinator that's funded a number of companies. And um, we had basically every problem. (laughs) We committed every mistake a startup could possibly commit. And then kind of randomly we were, um, mostly because of the the company's blog actually, we were uh, acquired by Twitter. And then a little bit of drama. Uh, the rest of the company went to Twitter, but I actually ended up with Facebook. So I was uh, an early employee on Facebook's ads team, um, which is where, uh, which is what a lot of the book covers. Actually, what I just described. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So a lot of what we cover here at UC San Diego um, in the Clark Center is the kind of imagining what the future might be like for uh, human beings on the planet uh, that will hopefully endure and have arts and science, but also culture and 
in particular, you know, kind of the besides fantasy, we, we also engage a lot in speculative culture and what it might be like, uh, um, you know, dystopian, utopian in the future. Um, you've, you've spoken a lot about the, you know, the, the future of tech and the limitations, um, both from a um, from a revenue standpoint, but also from a physical limitation standpoint. I wonder if you can sort of sketch out whether or not you think the future of, say, Facebook in particular is is uh, are you sanguine on the future? Or do you feel like there are any limitations to its to its cancerous like growth, or um, yeah. how do, how do you see it proceeding in the future? Yeah, you know it's funny. Facebook is a strange thing. I mean, it's um, uh, particularly in the context of the 2016 election, right? A lot of people are, are thinking about what Facebook's impact was on democracy, and um, you know, Zuck has taken some pretty strong. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the, the CEO and founder of Facebook, has taken some strong views, and uh, it's funny. He you know, he came out with like a 6,000 word manifesto about a year ago about the, centri- the potential centrality of Facebook and whatever new civil institutions kind of rise up to sort of try to patch up our democratic experiment. And um, you know, it's funny. He has an observation that I, that I also kind of made. So I, I wrote Chaos Monkeys on a small, somewhat remote island in the Pacific Northwest called Orcas. Island. And, uh, you know, it's a very small, tight little island. And uh, w- what I realized was that, you know, Facebook basically reproduced the realities of small town, small community living that humans are kind of used to, but that due to the scale of large cities, uh, you know, disintegration of traditional institutions like churches, unions, what have you, um, you know, Facebook kind of fills in the gap. But, you know, on, on Orcas Island, you don't need to check into the local bar because there's only one that everyone's at. Everyone, if you're out, everyone is there, <laughs> right? Um, when you have, um, when you meet a friend, you've got eight common friends, and you catch up on all eight of them, and that's basically you. You have this running news feed every time you run into somebody, right? And so Facebook tries to create some simulacrum of that sort of in this small little black mirror that sits in your pocket. Um, and so um, you know the the future, in some sense, of of socializing is kind of that an ungeo constrained social network. I mean, if you actually look at, for example, the number of friends you interact with on most social networks, it's it's still kind of uh, used to what's called Dunbar's number, which is this observation that most humans basically can carry the state in their head for about 130 to 150 people, which is your sort of typical hunter-gatherer tribe. So even though there's whatever it is, 7 billion plus people crawling on the planet, and you know San Diego has however many millions of people population, at the end of the day, we really only care about 150 people. And Facebook kind of cuts down that noise to that thing. Um, and so, yeah, I think social media is kind of the new town square. I mean, Twitter is the sort of new public agora, in a way, the new uh, marketplace. Um, so, I mean, I think it's one way of thinking about Facebook, and of course, there's a positive spin to that. Getting back to Zuck's manifesto, he, in a you know, in, in a typically ambitious um, way, and also maybe easy to, saddle, to satirize way, um, you know, he proposed Facebook being this new social nexus that people would organize themselves around instead of previous institutions like churches and unions and neighborhood associations and the apartment building you lived in, all this stuff. And you know, I don't know if I'm quite as sanguine on the chances of Facebook of you know filling in that gap, but. Um, uh, you know, Facebook, I think, announced just yesterday that they're having this sort of global leaders program. I forget the exact name. They're basically giving money to people who run large communities on Facebook to try to make them tighter knit and create more like high quality connections. Um, and uh, I think they announced their first prize winner, I think, this morning, in fact. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I think Facebook is really seriously thinking about that. I mean, I think Zuckerberg personally does actually care about it. I think the 2016 election really caught them by surprise in terms of what, what Facebook created there mm-hmm. um, and some of the political polarization that you see in this country. 
Um, no, so. but you were making the point in your physics colloquium yesterday that that um, that type of political targeting wasn't, uh, while you know, used in a new or slightly new way, it wasn't it wasn't strictly speaking a new phenomenon. It had been around for several years right. that at least the possibility existed, but right. the way it was engaged in this current campaign. Uh, but just broadly speaking, <clears throat> you know, so um, I think there is this possibility of this, yeah, this device in your pocket that's around you that knows where you are and knows what you like and predict. And I want to get into your role and the, and right. the uncanny ability that it has right. to forecast desire. Um, but still, you know, the potential for uh, the dystopian future, I think, is what concerns many of us that, um, you know, any entity, whether government or commercial or, or for profit, has this uh, so much knowledge, so much potential for abuse and and um, and manipulation and I worry um, and I you know it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts from from someone who's on the inside right. about this you know the potential for a you know perhaps only commercially driven desires that that an entity like Facebook might have and Facebook in particular because they're just the largest by far and right. if you combine them with Instagram they're more than you know all the other competitors combined right. but um, and then also the potential for the for the you know kind of uh, big brother type future where where government control could could actually intercede using these tools to their advantage so. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so on the, on the ads targeting thing, just uh, so, you know, my, my official role at Facebook was I was the first product manager for ads targeting. I, was in a, uh, I wasn't a very early Facebook employee, but I was definitely one of the first 20 or 30 um, sort of, you know, employees on the product development side of the ads team. There was only six product managers, of which I was one. And so, you know, in, in a nutshell, how, how does Facebook ads targeting work and how did it work? So until about 2012, right around the I IPO, which is not coincidental, by the way, Facebook's ads targeting was – Facebook was basically a walled garden. You know, any data generated on Facebook never left. If you wanted to target ads at somebody, it could only be based on Facebook data, so stuff on your profile or, or basically pages that you've liked. And so you could target someone who's interested in BMW and then basically boil down to someone who liked the BMW-related page, right? That was it, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's not very good for a lot of what's called direct response marketing. It's like I'm actually selling a thing online or want you to go look at a video. That association that that implies is actually not very tight. I mean, the fact that you like BMW doesn't mean you're actually going to buy a BMW in the next six months, right? Because um, it's kind of a brand. People associate it with it. It's like a public statement. But it doesn't mean I can afford a $50,000, you know, a three series BMW. And so, you know, and also Facebook at the time was having some real revenue issues going into its IPO. And so they basically made a call out for like, what are cool new ideas that we can do? And I'd had a history in a little bit of the outside data space, the retargeting space, the shoes that follow you around the internet trick that most everyone's seen, right? And so I, I built the first versions of the targeting tools that basically join what was a totally closed Facebook community to this entire outside world of data that you know, some of your listeners might be familiar with, but probably most aren't. Um, there's, it's funny, everyone fears Facebook, but actually Facebook is like the, the company you should least fear, <laughs> to be honest. There's companies, well, I mean, there's companies, I mean, not, you know, these are public companies, and what they do is, is officially public, even though not what public and well known, and again, not to disparage them at all, okay, but there's companies like Axiom, companies like Experian, which, by the way, sells you credit reports, that's the least of their business, they actually have all sorts of other data on you, um, Epsilon, et cetera. And these companies, a lot of them come out of the direct mail world. And I know mail seems really, you know, musty and old and like this ancient thing. But in fact, they've been doing, you know, household level targeting for decades now. 
Um, so, you know, those catalogs you get or like Bed Bath & Beyond selling, sending you the 20% off coupon, right? And you go and use it and they actually track that purchase, right? Or if you use a Safeway discount card with your phone number, they track that to an individual ID. Right. So this is, there's this whole outside world. And, uh, right. We've encountered you go in and you buy a, a pregnancy test. Right. Hit nine months later, you start getting ads on the back right. of the receipt for right. diapers. Exactly. That is not accidental, right? right? So, mm-hmm. some, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the ads targeting conspiracy theories, and we can get into that if you care. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are conspiracy theories, but a lot of them are just, no, in fact, they, yeah, they are kind of tracking you. Mm-hmm. And so what happened in 2012 was that, um, uh, you know, me, me and other people uh, built the data union kind of between the Facebook user ID, the, the you that's on Facebook, with that entire outside world of data when before there was that, that link just didn't exist. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Basically, and so we just created that. And um, you know, as as you sort of hinted at, originally it was considered to be a consumer thing, you know, selling you something. Um, but there's no reason once you've done that union and you can un- upload somebody's email or phone number or name, which is basically how it works, mm-hmm. and effectively get uh, a Facebook user ID in return, effectively. Um, then anybody can use it, right? So there's a whole world of political data that can be used to target people, right? Which evidently, according, if you believe reports, and I have no inside data on it, but according to credible news reports, Trump used those targeting mm-hmm. tools extensively, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not just to target people to vote, but presumably to also get them to not vote and suppress votes, which is, for my you know, purely apolitical and uh, you know, sociopathic ad tech uh, you know, marketer's point of view is kind of interesting that you're running ads to get people to not do things, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a fairly unique use case in the advertising space. Right. Um, <laughs> you're getting them to not buy a candidate. Um, so anyhow, yeah, I mean, that, that's how Facebook targeting went from you know, a fairly crude thing that it didn't actually work very well to actually being you know, actually very well-targeted ads. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's funny that uh, you know, <laughs> within Facebook, ads was seen as a sort of necessary evil, right? Like Facebook is not a very revenue-centric company, whatever rumors you might hear about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, users never really like ads. And ads go from either being kind of crappy, like really bad, and if you remember, Facebook ads used to be crappy, right? These sort of iPad scam offers, things that you just have no interest in, and suddenly it's like the the product that you just researched literally three seconds ago, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, ads are either creepy or crappy or creepy. Mm-hmm. They're, they're ne- there's no Goldilocks <laughs> solution. There's nothing in between, mm-hmm. right? It's always going to suck. Um, but you know, at the very the good thing about the creepy side is that they they cost a lot more. Now you you yeah. were you're one of the pioneers in the creepy side. Can you yeah. can you explain for the list? Listeners, many of whom you know will not be familiar with with how it works, but but they are you know startlingly familiar with the actual end end product of, of your work. So if you could explain it in layperson's terms, sure, that would be useful. Sure. I mean, so there's various pieces of plumbing that join together all these outside databases with your Facebook experience. Um, one of the ones that I built that. Uh, it worked for several years, and they, and they discontinued for mostly political reasons. But it is the industry standard way, um, is what's called real-time programmatic uh, ads bidding. And, and what this is, by analogy, it's kind of like the computer-driven uh, stock exchanges, if you've read, speaking of Michael Lewis, like Flash Boys, in which you have high-frequency trading, you have hedge funds that have computers close to an exchange that sit there and trade stocks in, like, microseconds, right? It's, it's kind of the version of that for the ads world. So believe it or not, every time... Almost every time you go to a website or, or many mobile apps and you load an experience, literally in that instant, there are you know internet signals going out 
to hundreds of advertisers saying, hey, so-and-so is here. Of course, they anonymize you, but functionally, it doesn't matter. It's you, right? Um, this person is here. They search the databases for all the commercial data they have on you, and they have all sorts of stuff, everything you've bought online, a lot of things you've bought offline, et cetera. They come up with a product they want to recommend you, an ad to show you, a bid based on the chan- what they think are the chances of you actually buying that thing, and they submit that to the auction. And it just happens in 120 milliseconds, like instantly. That goes back to the auction. You know, the, the, the publisher or the exchange picks a winner, and then you see that ad. And that just happens hundreds of billions of times a day um, via that programmatic uh, mechanism. And then Facebook, the, the other system they built is called Custom Audiences. The details don't really matter, but functionally it's the same thing. It's not the same real-time thing. Like, it's not at the moment, but it, it, at a logical level, it's the exact same individual level targeting that happens. And so that's how this whole world is kind of glued together um, with these, you know, instant real-time exchanges um, or some version of them, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so there's also a great deal of you know, sociological or psychological, um, uh, I don't want to say manipulation, but, but in order to manipulate, you have to understand, right? And um, can you say something about, um, you know, the, the, Facebook's not all, you know, geeks and, you know, and, 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 and hoodies programming and hacking right. all hours of the day, right? There, there are researchers that are studying social habits, sociological reward mechanisms, right. feedback. Can you say some uh, some of what the experience is like you yeah. know, from that perspective? Well, so, yeah, I mean, one thing I feel the need, I feel obliged to clarify is, uh, you know, it's funny, you often hear in ads, Facebook showed me an ad for, right? And it's it's funny, people, part of the reason why I wrote the book is to hopefully clear up a lot of the, what are to me fallacies of, of how Facebook works. So by and large, Facebook is not showing you an ad for a thing, right? They provide the tools, the targeting tools that allow an advertiser to show it to you. I mean, Facebook is effectively the messenger boy, right, just to be clear. But what you might be hinting at, I guess, maybe is maybe less on the ad side, but getting you to use the app, like on the growth team, right? Yeah. Yeah. So So inside, inside every tech company that knows what it's doing, um, there's some version of a team called growth, Right, and what that means, I mean, it, it, it sounds kind of fungal, and it, it, that's kind of that's what you should be thinking. Um, you know, it's it's the people who exploit every little psychological trick to convert you into the sort of Pavlovian dog who sits there and salivates when you hear your phone buzz. I mean, that's that's kind of the point of of what they do, and and, and very overtly so. Like, I'm not even being hyperbolic about it. Um, I, I dedicate a chapter in my book to the growth team actually because we, we worked a little bit with them, even though that was not my area. But um, you know, they're the the people who literally have like a map of the world. Um, showing, uh, you know, Facebook's penetration or a f- fraction of sort of social market in every country. And they literally go country to country and just dominate it until everyone's on Facebook. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, at heart, they're actually the best, the best marketers at Facebook by far were not on the ads team. It's the people on the growth team who actually knew how to use their, you know, Facebook as a platform to advertise itself and get you to do things. Um, <coughs> and, um, you know, it's, you know, I think a lot of people are actually starting to raise objections to this. Um, you know, one of the early Facebook employees, uh, Chamath, uh, who actually started their growth team, uh, you know, recently went on record saying he's a little worried about how this is, you know, rewiring people's brains to get these little dopamine hits all the time. And like, is that actually a normal thing to do? Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people are actually having questions about it. I myself have a few questions about it. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's in Silicon Valley, it's not cons- it, people completely unironically refer to their growth teams and driving growth and basically addicting everyone to their apps as if it's, you know, God's own work, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and then uh, we've talked about how you know they've actually employed uh, uh, folks from from the gaming industry, from the you know slot machine industry to to time the optimal amount of milliseconds that a person needs to you know be strung along before they get a right. notification, before they get that beautiful little red icon yeah. uh, indicating they have a follower or a post yeah. or something like that. And yeah, it reminds me. Yeah, we're. 
we seem to be reaching a point almost where there's a backlash to the yep. you know digital uh, digital domain that we seem to live on, and people talking about digital detoxes. I, I yep. wonder, from your perspective, since you kind of embody the two different cultures of you know kind of the tech side, but also with um, uh, literary artistic side, right. uh, journalist side, uh, what, what what advice do you have for parents like yourself or you know like oh. me um, for kids growing up with it? I mean, we grew up with Commodore 64s or whatever, right. and that the the the, the experience was was not not uh, altogether uh, addictive, but you know it had its moments, but but still nothing like the twenty four seven connectivity right. that people have. So, um, yeah. where where do you see it going in the future? If it's that like this now for a one year old, my one year old can swipe left and swipe right, uh, not on Tinder, but on other other social uh, networking sites that she falls access to. Yeah, right. I mean, I saw this viral video recently in which it was a a, a toddler, a newborn, um, interacting with like a print magazine. And, uh, you know, a magazine was like an iPad that didn't work to this kid. <laughs> right. This kid was trying to swipe to make it work and felt very disappointed and, like, threw it away. Yeah. Like, what is this garbage, the right? The experience, the growth right. team was upset. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I mean, and it's it's funny how quickly we go from things that seem like, you know, new, new shiny things to us that have more history and suddenly become the basics, right? Like, um, and it's funny, it makes you feel old. I, want to, I have to explain to a 20-something what an answering machine was because <laughs> they saw it in a movie and they didn't know what it was. Right. I'm like, you know, back in the day, you used to just call somebody and it would just ring. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> and there was, just, nobody would pick up. And if they didn't pick up, you just didn't talk to them. Yeah. That's how it works. Yeah, real tape, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think it is kind of like I have kids, younger kids now. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if we have 100% no screen rule because they see me using the laptop and they get kind of sucked into it a little bit. Um, but, yeah, definitely I – there's no intent, you know, there's certainly no drive to get them to use these things mm-hmm. very often. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, on the one hand, I work in the media world, and obviously I use Facebook a lot, but more than I should probably. But I don't actually consume that much media. I mean, I was raised, my mother was a librarian. Mm-hmm. I was raised in a library. I was a book geek, basically. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we had a computer in the home, but I wasn't super computer geeky sort of kid. And, I'm, you know, I still, I'm still kind of a, a bit of a Luddite that way. Um, there's a saying in the wire or whatever, the best dealers don't use, right? So, like, yeah. <laughs> I'm a guy sort of dealing ads. Supply, right? right, right, exactly. I'm dealing ads and selling <laughs> Facebook. But, like, but then, ads. like, half the time, like, people drop pop cultural references, and I don't know what they're talking about because <laughs> I don't actually watch stuff on Netflix. Well, right you either. were mentioning yesterday, you know, that this um, – so Arthur C. Clarke, our patron, you know, saint of the Clark Center, said that any sufficiently advanced technology is basically indistinguishable from right. magic. And we're getting to that point, you know, where you've got uh, literally wireless communication instantaneous information, all the information and human knowledge uh, being regenerated, reprocessed. I mean, billions of hours of, of, uh, of elapsed human lifetime every year being uploaded uh, to YouTube alone. Uh, Where do you see this going? You you spoke yesterday of a, of a, you know, this kind of analogy that you liked from, uh, from the gods must be crazy. And I wonder if you can repeat that. (laughs) Well, so the gods must be crazy was in the context of Facebook trying to provide internet to more and more people in the world. So the the short story is that Facebook is running out of people on the internet. Uh, There's something like, uh, three and a half billion people on the internet. A lot of them are in China. So and you know, so Facebook has basically converted everybody in the sort of free wor- freeish world to be a Facebook user. And so they're they actually I don't people don't realize Facebook has an air force. They've actually bought an aircraft company that's going to fly solar paneled high altitude airplanes that are going to beam internet to the rest of the world. And it, it reminded me of this early '80s sort of viral indie film called The Gods Must Be Crazy, in which the premise of it is there's a hunter gatherer tribe in the Kalahari Desert in. Uh, in Africa, which you know actually does exist, although it's a fictional film, and then you know a bush pilot drops a coke bottle into their into their world, which just completely rocks their world to see this bottle come out of nowhere, and it's got a lot of positive things, has negative things, and eventually they choose to like reject the coke bottle and reject modernity, right? And uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I was mentioning in the context of the uncharted frontiers of some tech, and you know, what happens when you get the next the next global billion or two billion and put them on the internet, and you know, people who have you know have have lived a, many times a pre-modern, certainly at least pre-industrial life, and suddenly they're you know they they get live streamed, you know, cat videos right. and <laughs> memes and porn and God mm-hmm. knows what, right? Um, it's going to be an interesting, weird anthropological change, and you know, I don't think anyone's seriously thinking about what's what impact that's going to have. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, and I wonder with this, you know, the Air Force flying over and you know beaming Facebook twenty four seven and autonomous cars, which on one hand can be you know wonderful to to increase productivity, but it's also you know clearly in a response to generate more traffic to sites like Facebook and Amazon right. and, and and other places where people can consume and spend more of their attention, not driving but consuming. Right. Um, so it, it it does seem to come with a lot of uh, unwanted consequences, and I just yeah. I just wonder, you know, how humanity, if humanity's brain is really wired to to withstand so, it. So, so it's funny. That's you know, it's funny. I was there's this theory that I'm reading about at least recently. And I'm, I'm sort of that guy. If I read something that morning, that's interesting. Like it, because I think it's the most important thing for the next two days. <laughs> um, so there's this concept that I, I only learned about recently. I think it's been around for a few years, called the Gutenberg parentheses, and the, the right. So you haven't heard about it either. It's funny. Mm-hmm. So. The, the idea here is, and this is from, uh, it's, they're either sociologists or media theorists or something uh, from Denmark. The idea, the idea here is that what we know as sort of the Western Enlightenment or what, you know, a university stands for, this, the, the sort of solidity of a book with an index on it and the notion of an objective truth and, you know, editorial authority of some sort uh, in the form of a professor or whatever. Like, th- this is all a result of Gutenberg and the Western Enlightenment and the sort of Western paradigm, right? And we think it's normal because we were sort of raised in it. But if you actually take the longer sweep of history, you know, most of human society was not literate until relatively recently, right? And most of human society, I mean, came from oral traditions. I mean, Homer was some amalgam of poets, right? If you listen to the Odyssey, it would be read to you. It would not, you would not actually read it in any written way. There's no notion of footnotes. This whole textual society we've gotten used to is actually pretty unusual in the, in the scheme of human life. And if you look at a lot of internet, I think a lot of the reason why the internet is actually so attractive is because it actually resembles a lot of the communication and oral traditions from the past, right? Um, it might be textual and takes place on the screen, but it's it's ephemeral, right? It's like it's mm-hmm. like the gossip you hear in the public square. Mm-hmm. It's non-authoritative. Mm-hmm. There's no appeal to authority. Anybody can say anything, right. um, and it's the sort of informal, like town crier. Um, you know, everyone has their little microspace right, sort of thing that we've kind of always lived in. Of course, mm-hmm. now it exists at global scale thanks to technology that's driving it. But in some level, the pleasure centers of our brain that it's sort of hitting and, and keeping us sitting there refreshing Twitter, even though I should just be reading a book, come from that same um, sort of atavistic sort of town hunter-gatherer mm-hmm. tribe thing. Um, and you know, and that, that so world it's a throwback actually. Yeah, so it's, 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 that's the thing. So mm-hmm. the internet's going forward, mm-hmm. but we're actually going back to a medieval age, right? Mm. Things are a lot more tribal, right? I mean, it's it's digital, tribes, right, right? Right. I mean, this whole Western Enlightenment was about universal standards of human rights and liberal democracy and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And whether due to postmodernism or whether due to again, you know, recur, you know, reverting back into this medieval age, we've kind of given up on that notion a little bit. Well, not a little bit, a lot, I think. And you know, every tribe is just kind of reverting back into its online space and this and conversations become largely mutually unintelligible in many ways in the same way that if you plucked some Czech villager and plopped him into I don't know an Incan city <laughs> is circa you know 1450 even if you had a translator they, they, they just almost couldn't relate to each right. other they have completely different values worldviews everything right mm-hmm. and it seems like we're almost getting to that point and I, and I really do wonder if this enlightenment age that you and I are old enough to have like 
grown up in, right? I remember like computers were just not a thing when I was a kid. Um, like we might be the last generation that even sort of saw that or lived with that or expected that. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, it's, I'm still trying to get my head around it, but it just seems interesting to me that um, that um, that yeah, that a lot of the media we're interacting with in some ways is actually a, a medieval experience. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why I'm thinking this, and I'm, I'm working on a piece for this for Wired, is the rise of like voice as the new medium. Hmm. Um, and I don't know how much you want to go in this direction, but um, oh, it's a podcast. Yeah. After okay. All. So yeah. So, yeah. So, so <laughs> podcasting is part of it. So I, I had like three epiphanies that convinced me that voice, in many ways, is a, is a big part of the future. So one is podcasts, right? So when I promoted the book, right, and you're going to do this too, right? Like I did network TV, and to be honest, it doesn't actually generate a lot of online engagement. Like I did, MP, I did, you know, NBC's This Morning or whatever with Charlie Rose and Gail King, like you know, major thing, right? It was kind of a little blip there that lasted an hour, and then I did, you know. Um, a bunch of podcasts, like, you know, Note to Self from WNYC, which is a very followed thing, which I didn't even know about it because I wasn't that into podcasting. And it was it got a huge amount of online engagement. It was a really good interview, too. Um, and I was like, wow. It's like, And so, I, you know, I, like an idiot, still thought podcasts was something that some, like, loser guy in a basement <laughs> about, you know, collecting lead figurines from his D&D game or some crap, you know, was, like, podcasting to, like, a thousand people. I had no idea that it was basically the new spoken word medium for, like, you know, the, and it, that it was, it's basically taking over radio yeah. and even text. In the same Customized way that, radio. Right, in the same yeah. way that mm-hmm. Netflix is, like, killing Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, th- there was that epiphany. And then the other is I got one of these smart speaker Alexa devices, which mm. I don't know if you've ever tried one of mm-hmm. these. Like, I was always the guy who hated the voice button on their phone because I never used it because it always so sucked. Right. But I just finally, I, you know, I just got bought one of these things. And I spent, I think, the afternoon that everyone spends having a conversation with this damn box and, and you know, trying to sort of partially... Telling you jokes, right? right telling mm-hmm, jokes, mm-hmm. getting to tell me dirty jokes. Square roots of large, irrational numbers. Right, or, like, bizarre historical facts that it could actually manage to interpolate on Wikipedia or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't quite enough to make me fall in love with it, like in that movie Her. Like, it wasn't that charming. <laughs> But it was enough in the span of a few hours to reprogram my brain to just expect having access to, like, the Internet right. in a spoken way. Jarvis. Uh, right. Yeah. And I remember, like, I spent the afternoon, and then I got my car, and I was driving along, and, like, an idiot, I said, oh, Alexa, blah, like, in my car. <laughs> and, like, nobody answered. I'm like, right. oh, God, what are you doing? Yeah. But then I just realized that that's it. I had been reprogrammed to assume that I could just talk to the Internet and it would talk yeah. back. And so, yeah, so anyhow, it's just, it's funny, I think, I mean, this, it's a slightly separate thread, but I think it's part of the same general trend, if you believe this Gutenberg hypothesis, that, um, you know, humans are going to start interacting with, with the world that computers provides them as, as, as a verbal medium in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like, I mean, half my book sales were probably audible books, actually, yeah. like my, mm-hmm. my readers were actually listeners. And, you know, they're, they're listening to my book, again, the same way that, you know, the tribal storyteller would repeat the same story on a certain day around the campfire, right. and you would just sit there and listen to it, because that's what mm-hmm. humans want to do. Or the preacher would read it from yeah, the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, like, that aspect of it, it, it's funny, you see it in the way that podcasts even monetize. I mean, it's a little bit wonky here, but just to give you a little taste of it, podcast, you know, podcast must be the only medium where the ads that perform the best are the ones read by the host. Yeah. Like, right, like Ira Glass on This American Life, he reads his Lagunitas Brewing ad or whatever. Not, it's some podcasters, and admittedly it may not be an objective source, publish studies that some users actually, when they removed ads, actually asked for the ads back. Like, it was part of the experience. Like, that was the right. close of This American Life mm-hmm. was it's a signal. Right. It's mm-hmm. a signal. It's like, wait, where is it? It's like missing when mm-hmm. it's gone. And in almost no medium do you do yeah. users like seek. miss the ads. Right, seek the ads. Um, so it's, it's just really interesting that, again, there's, there's a different relationship between between, you know, content producer and listener when it's a, it's a verbal thing. Or, and I think the relationship between the human and computation is also very different when it's a spoken versus a textual thing. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I tend to wonder if we're about to start a new sort of slightly medieval age in which humans' relationship with themselves as media to computers actually regresses into like an earlier form. And, you know, no one reads, uh, you know, a 
15,000 word New Yorker piece or right. even a 500 page book like mine anymore. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is a future for these books, for books like yours? I don't know. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. So the Gutenberg maybe uh, actually turning in his grave. If I mean, there's a certain there's a certain highfalutin literature, you know, literary culture for which books will always be a thing, right? So like the New York publishing set, having a book is like a major feather in your cap and you kind of have to do it, right? But in terms of the larger culture, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. What are millennials doing? That's the canary in the cage that every marketer says. Right. What are they doing? Are, are, are they actually reading books in between eating Tide Pods or are they not? <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> the eternal question. What could be more delicious than a Tide Pod? Yeah. Uh, well, Antonio, I'd like to thank you so much for coming and visiting UC San Diego sure. and being a part of this Into the Impossible podcast as part of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And I wish you luck in your, in your next endeavor, which will hopefully involve the successful uh, Trans-Pacific crossing right. of uh, uh, from from uh, California to uh, to Hawaii. So I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank Please you. keep in touch. Yeah. It's wonderful to welcome Douglas Rushkoff, who's the author of 20 books and many articles and the giver of many uh, talks and, and media presentations. Uh, and, and today we're going to talk in particular about his most uh, two most recent books, uh, one called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, which uh, is just a lovely title, and the other one, Present Shock, which, which, um, which has a lot of I think actionable intelligence for those of us that are concerned about the future, ironically, and how to deal with issues of communication of the, the thought processes of, of anticipating what the future will be like based on how we behave in the present. So I want to talk to you first uh, and welcome you, Douglas, um, and and mention also the fact that you're the host of the Team Human po podcast. And I wonder how, how did that uh, name come about? How did you choose that? That's the name of your podcast. Um. I was on a panel with some uh, futurist technologists who shall remain nameless, and they were talking about the singularity and uploading human consciousness to the web or whatever. The and right, and they they were really enamored of uh, artificial intelligence, and said that genuine conscious artificial intelligence with autonomy and agency and awareness was inevitable and when it emerged it would be really our evolutionary successor and our job at that point was really just to keep the lights on for this thing and after we're not needed anymore to retreat, you know, to, to give them the stage and then be okay with our annihilation. You know, <laughs> they really were telling the story of the, of, of the history of the cosmos, really, as the evolution of information from simpler to more complicated states, sort of this anti-entropic urge of, of information mm -hmm. to find more and more complex vehicles or media to express itself. So you went from, you know, your quarks to atoms to molecules to organelles to mm -hmm. organisms to humans to culture to computers. Mm -hmm. And then once computers are a more complicated home than us, pass the torch. 
And I said, no, but but they're just computers. There's people. I like people. You know, we've got to create, uh, uh, we've got to preserve humanity. And, and who knows what we're passing on? We, we vastly oversimplify with our digital technologies. The things that we're putting forward, we're, we're not retrieving all of the human values. We High resolution is not necessarily... Uh, recreation of life or of everything. It's just we only can put into high resolution the things that we know to resolve Mm -hmm. Uh, and that humans deserve a place in the future social order. And they said to me, oh, Doug, you're just saying that because you're a human. Mm. (laughs) As if it was some supreme act of hubris for me to hope for there to be humans. And I said, damn right, I'm on team human. (laughs) You know, guilty, guilty. And that's sort of where the team human meme came from mm-hmm. you're right if i am not for myself who will be for me the robots and the ai not likely not and not even just for me but for all the others you know the other people right so i, I mean i see you as an, a unique mixture of you know kind of cassandra and also you know a very uh, a very a positivist about the, uh, the the future of humanity on earth and technology and the interface between them but with the with the caveat that you are more than uh, well versed in the in the dangers and the, and the difficulties of achieving this, you know, either singularity being a being a tech utopia or dystopia, and I think you know the odds are maybe fifty fifty for each one, but I I think it's it's interesting that you really have focused on this utopian myth that kind of has subsumed much of our neighbors in northern part of the state, and I wonder you know things have only gotten worse since since you've written or, or better depending on your perspective since this book since Present Shock. Um, and e- even the you know, throwing rocks from the Google bus where, where you're basically just describing, you know, the kind of strange uh, battle between different cultures and different societies where where the people that are providing these great benefits of technology are despised and, and you know, for the practical dilemmas that they're causing to people that have to live in the neighborhoods where the Google bus is traveling. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, I mean, do you see – where do you forecast in linear aggression fashion and where do you see this going in the future? Uh, since you wrote the books, these these two books, which I you know explore explore different themes, but I think there is this core thread of of being hopeful yet yet you know in some sense realistic about what the future dangers could bring. Yeah, well, I mean, I wrote kind of lovingly and almost uh, you know psychedelically about digital technology in the in the early days in the early internet days because uh, mm-hmm. the 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 particular bay area culture that was fostering and and promoting this stuff you know from the late 80s through the early 90s was a a very kind of cosmic in the cultural sense group of people who mm-hmm. were seeing how are we going to enhance Humanity, humanity. And, mm-hmm. right, and and connect us all into the Gaian brain mm-hmm. and take responsibility for our ecosystem, and it was this beautiful vision mm-hmm. that um, got sidetracked, and and I, I was really exploring for what was the what was the root cause of this. You know, so in some of the books, I start looking at oh, why are we applying technology towards the the a submission of human novelty and and why are we trying to you know replace cognition or um, you know just build an attention economy and manipulate people and their behaviors mm-hmm. you know and so I looked at it that way and then I realized well 
the re- that that there were this there was this operating system underneath it all the operating system of of kind of venture capitalism and corporate mm-hmm. capitalism that was being accepted as a given circumstance by most of these poor kids who were you know dropping out of school Stanford, yeah, right yeah. to start a company and which even, has no future you know it didn't have the limitless future potential growth that they might have anticipated in their right. econ 107 but growth. even the even the google kids you know who who go to they they take money from sequoia capital and th- when they started google they were like look what's going to make us better than yahoo is that we're not advertising based mm-hmm. And then they become mm-hmm. the biggest advertising company in the world. So uh, that's why then I looked at, OK, if I can deconstruct venture capitalism, corporate capitalism, show people that this is not a condition of nature, that, 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 that libertarians are wrong, that nature doesn't actually work like this, that there's a marketplace with specific rules that were invented by very specific people at specific times and defended with, with swords and, and gunpowder um, and that there's other models that could be uh, much more generative and sustainable. Mm-hmm. We don't all have to die. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked at that and then I'm thinking – but now I'm kind of thinking that, that even this economic model is the, the result of a particular almost combustion-based cause and effect – linear uh, understanding in way of time, mm-hmm. you know, and I started looking at what I'm writing about now, you know, the the kind of the, the Judeo-Christian invention of linear time and cause and effect and the positive aspects of it, like the uh, quest for social justice and making the world a better place, but then the sort of negative aspects, so looking forward to this moment of, of redemption and uh, you know, because the problem is if you look at civilization as like this vehicle with an exhaust pipe, then all your exhaust is going behind you into some history that doesn't really exist anymore. Mm-hmm. But it actually does. You're, you're exhausting into other people's present or other people's future. You know, this this uh, willingness, I guess what I'm saying, the willingness of technologists and venture capitalists to externalize the negative impacts of all the things they're doing is partly uh, uh, could be traced to this kind of false mythology that we have about uh, how our world how our world works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've spoken about these issues of, you know, the Kronos, the world of Kronos and, and the linear time flow. And I think, you know, just just to maybe short circuit to a topic I was going to delay for later, but you, since you brought up the Judeo-Christian aspects of, of things, you, you, you've written and spoken a lot about your relationship with uh, with religion. And, and I think also, you know, one thing I noted that you know, it was really one of the, the best vignettes and in in, in one of the best vignettes in some of your writing. You talk about Twitter being basically an abject failure, you know, that <laughs> it's such a brilliant idea and it has these great, great, you know, potential, uh, but it's so future limited and, and uh, you know, that basically it's it's its creators can't even afford the luxury of of, of enjoying the present, you know, when, right. they, when they have a valuation. And I'm wondering, you know... Because they only make $2 billion right, a year. That's right, they're right. considered it's a failure. A problem. Right, right. Yeah. So there's a limitation. So I wonder... You know, correspondingly, you know, is there a limitation to God? You know, has God, be, you know, is it worth God, you know, getting a new Twitter handle? Because, I mean, has he reached or has she or it or whatever, has it reached this kind of point of diminishing returns where there's no more expansion in the future? And maybe humans have outgrown this notion 
of a deity? Uh, or do you still think it serves a purpose? Or, or, or is it some sort of scaffolding that got us to this, you know, exalted space where we do think about time in a linear and, as opposed to cyclic progression, as you've written about? Well, I, I feel like we Jews may have made some errors. And in a, uh, we, we kind of, uh, uh, we helped the transition from this idea of local gods to one big universal kind of generic abstract god. Mm-hmm. And we did this partly in our self-interest because we had no home, you know? <laughs> so if you got no locality, you can't have a local god. And if you don't want those people to hate you or kill you for having a different god, then you say, well, look, there's really just one, one right. great universal god. I mean, and it was a, that was a really good survival strategy. But what, what we did by scaling up God mm-hmm. is created a society where people think everything has to scale up in order to – Exist in order to be right. right. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that uh, we have to give up on God. I think, but I think that we have to learn to recognize God as less separate from our reality and our actions and and what we're doing. I mean, it was a, it was a it was a good idea because gods had been so abused. Gods had been turned into icons, into idols. You know, they the the, the Egyptian death cults would put the the image of the god right on top of the ark. Mm-hmm. There'd be here's the cow god, here's the the right. goat god, you know, <laughs> and what the Israelites did and it was it's really a great passage in Torah where um, God's describing what kind of ark to build and and he says, "Look, you build the whole ark, it sounds exactly like an Egyptian ark, except you don't put the god on the top. You put the emoji on top, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Put two little cherubs on either side mm-hmm. protecting the empty space. <laughs> right. So the cherubs and little cherubs are not speaking. sweet babies. Right. They're like little monsters protecting Demon. the empty space and then God says in, in Torah, he says, there in the empty space between the two cherubs, that's, that's where I'll come to you. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh. So God is about not building an aisle but creating an empty space and the interaction of the people where you gather that God is this thing. Filling so, in the space, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it became much more verb-like than noun-like. But it's really hard for people to hang on to that. Mm-hmm. People want something. If you look at St. Paul's letters to the Pharisees, mm-hmm. you know, he's saying, look – I can't market this. I can't. People, <laughs> it's not going to scale. Right. right. You need mm-hmm. blood. You need a picture. You need a face. You know, it's right. like Quaker Oats needed the Quaker on the box. <laughs> right. You can't just sell the words. Mm-hmm. The text only. Text only is not enough for people to grab onto. Right. You know. So uh, it's tricky. I don't think. I don't think we give up on God necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think, but. I think we have to understand that for us here now, the most important thing about having a God is. That it, a God forces us to remember that there are higher values than the sort of small lower lowercase v values. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Horkheimer wrote a great book called The Eclipse of Reason, hmm. and he talked about reason with a capital R. That you have to have reason with a capital R to do things, mm-hmm. not these little utilitarian reasons. Right. Purpose, right. right. Okay. So if you need real values, and if you're going to have real values, you have to accept that those values come from somewhere. If they're absolute, right? Mm-hmm. They have to somewhere. Come from somewhere else. Right. So why are you going to? Why do you go to school? Mm-hmm. Do you go to school to get the skills to get a job? You know that's not why school started. Schools originally started because learning with a capital L was a value. Mm-hmm. Because we wanted, especially poor people and coal miners, to go to school and have some quality of life, be able to read a book when they're not getting black lung. Mm-hmm. You know, 
And now we've turned school into a way for people to get jobs. So it's just an extension of the reality that we were compensating them for. Back then, right. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what's available now, and, and another thing you've written about is, I mean, basically, we can live like better than the kings of Europe did, you know, 500 years ago. I mean, if we want a mansion to stay in, there's Airbnb. If we want, you know, a chauffeured limousine to pull up for us, there's Uber. If we want to communicate to millions of people, we have Twitter, we have Facebook, we have, we have the ability to do things that were only available to monarchs in the past. And mm. I wonder now with the democratization of this technology, is it is it going to undermine it seems from your writing that you believe, and I think I think it's justifiable that maybe economic forces might be might just be the most powerful forces in the universe. I mean, I like to think you know gravity is a pretty important force, but but you know in terms of what happens here on Earth to the only you know civilization we know exists, what what is it about economic forces that are you know kind of currently um, on a veil, you know, that we can we can partake of, and then the future when when maybe there won't be those jobs to train for, you know, as as AI kind of increases in, in importance. Um, uh, this is something I know that's that's important to you. So, what what are your thoughts on sort of the changing of the economic landscape for an entire civilization that we're likely to live through in our lifetime? Well, I mean, it's interesting. The economic forces are not the big ones. The economic forces. The problem with the economic forces is they ignore the big ones, you know, <laughs> the things like whether it's, you know, climate change or topsoil erosion, mm-hmm. you know, economic forces uh, want to extract as much value as they can from every uh, uh, every opportunity. If that means depleting the topsoil so there's no more left in 30 years, um, then so be it, mm-hmm. you know. Growth at all costs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and it's that it's that world where you know if everyone gets cancer, it's good for the GDP in the short term, mm-hmm. you know, because they got to spend all this money on chemo uh, or or research, whatever it is. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and what's going to happen now? I mean, in some sense, I feel like the the this notion of our transition to a jobless future because robots are taking them all is kind of a myth Mm -hmm. because we're not doing the jobs well you know we're still doing we're still you know people have to die for our iphones to happen and where do they go and you know slavery right right so it's not like it's uh there's no jobs it's just we can we we seem to be willing if we make enough people suffer we can also have a jobless America, right, right. <laughs> you know, and that's a trade where it seems to be because the to the we that are living better than the monarchs of the past is we, mm-hmm. you know, not mm-hmm. the not the the slaves who are using toxic chemicals to get their fingerprints off the iPhones that they assemble for us, so right. that we think that there's no human uh, human intervention in their creation. Uh, but you know what what happens when the whatever it is hits the fan? Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, I, I as I've written, you know, I don't believe that jobs are the be all and end all. Jobs are really an artifact of a moment in the early Renaissance when small businesses were made illegal. People had to have a monopoly, a, mm-hmm. a charter from mm-hmm. the king in order to run a business. And if you didn't have one, you had to go work for someone who did. That's when employment was born. That's when people started to sell their time instead of selling the value they created. And we got used to it over 400 years, just like the uh, the Israelites got used to 400 years of slavery. Uh, of slavery. Egypt. Um, but then – so now we need a generation to sort of reinvent that you know, and say, oh, OK. It's not the jobs that we want. It's food. It's stuff. It's a uh, sense of purpose and meaning. I want to contribute meaningfully to my society. That doesn't necessarily 
necessarily mean employment. So yeah, we can start looking at things like universal basic income mm-hmm. that's, you know, give everyone a, li- a livable wage just for being here. And then if you want some luxuries and iPhones, then you got to figure out a way to create value for others. A career of the future, you know, uh, that is perhaps questionable in terms of its profitability is, is journalism and, and writing in general. And you, you as I've said, is, are the author of over, you know, 20 books and, and innumerable writings and, and, and as, a, as, a, as a teacher and uh, of the craft of writing. Where do you see the future of writing? I mean, do you think we're still going to be printing on pieces of dead trees in a hundred years, or are we going to, or is it going to endure just sort of as historical, you know, legacy artifact the way that you can get the vinyl LPs nowadays? Uh, where, where do you see the future of the written word? Um, and how, how do you see yourself? Do you, do you classify yourself as a writer, as more as a thinker, a speaker, a journalist? Do you have uh, many hats. I think you know, writing will stay around. Mm-hmm. I mean, it changes form. You know, as it went from, you know, uh, uh, writing on tablets and papyrus to, you know, the printing press was a big one. And um, what's happened digitally is as big as certainly as big as the printing press in terms of what it's done to text. Um, But it's also as big as the printing press in in terms of what it did to TV. Mm -hmm. You know, the the. As Marshall McLuhan liked to say, when you get a new medium, it turns whatever the previous medium was into the content. (laughs) So now, you know, television is itself the content of the Internet, Mm -hmm. surprisingly. Mm -hmm. You know, we thought it was going to be we thought it was going to be text. But no, it's TV. I mean, it's all that traffic is TV. uh, It's bizarre. I don't think writing goes away, but I think um, writing will will end up being uh, retrieved or rediscovered for what it offers that you know, video or something doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, right now, I, I was just experiencing this. I feel like in most people's lives, writing is noise. Hmm. You know, the the disagreements that people get in. Uh, I watch. I, I'll look at a Facebook feed and an argument, and I realize these people. They oh, it sounds so terrible to say. They don't know how to read and write. <laughs> right. They because really they don't, don't know how to think. I mean, thinking and, and writing are intimately connected. And sometimes if you can't think clearly, you're certainly not going to be able to write and communicate clearly. Right. right. Well, or not clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, or differently. Mm-hmm. You know, so they can write down what their amygdala <laughs> telling, is telling reflects them. Yeah, exactly. Them but it's really hard. You know, when we're using media that have been intentionally, consciously designed by your friends up at Stanford – I just say your friends because you're a professor in California. (laughs) Um, By your friends up in Stanford to bypass the neocortex Mm -hmm. and go straight to the brainstem. Um, That's a terrible thing to be doing to people, especially when they've got all this leverage now through these uh, digital media. Mm Yeah, so I think yeah, you're going to scale up on the micro side, but that may not drive the you know the content and the quality side. Yeah, I mean in terms of me. I don't know. I, I, I've been telling people I feel like this is my last book, this Team Human thing I'm mm-hmm. doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's less because I think books don't matter than because writing books is really lonely. Yeah. You know, and I've spent 20 books worth of time, which means 20 <laughs> years alone yeah. at a keyboard. Minimum, right? Um, yeah, yeah, writing these things. And um, 
it's not fair. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not fair. I want to go out and play softball with people. Right. I want to experience more life. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's enough of me. I feel like now if I have a platform and I do have some fame and whatever, mm-hmm. my job is to use that platform to promote the people and ideas that you've already right you mm-hmm. know of, of people of, of the next generation right you know, that's why i started the team human podcast so it's not me mm-hmm. it's it's them right yeah i think uh might have been this guy derek sievers who said you know if information was the only thing we needed then we'd all be billionaires with six-pack abs right so it's more than just having the the knowledge and and having you know it written down somewhere but i think you with your with your platform as you're saying you know, can really leverage the ideas and and actually implement them, and that brings me, you know, to, to one of the, the final topics I want to discuss with you is this notion, you know, that y- y- in your experience as an educator uh, in in New York and mine here, you know, we we've discussed this earlier that you know we basically never get taught on how to teach. We never get taught. You know, I was never taught on how to be a professor and right. how to how to speak in front of you know hundreds of of uh, young people and 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 inculcate the education that they are paying for so dearly. Uh, but also, you know, to 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 convey this 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 um, profession that's been largely untrained, unchanged in a thousand years since the first university in Bologna and in, in the late uh, uh, you know one thousands. Uh, and you know we have a single person standing up on a stage and 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 it's professing knowledge. The only difference is that you know in the old days the students would go on strike and then the professors wouldn't get paid. Yeah. So there was a you know perverse incentive. And I, and I hope now to the God professors that go never, on strike. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I hope to God that barbaric practice never resurfaces. Yeah. You know I don't want to be unemployed again. Uh, but but I think you know this this notion of of the craft of writing of teaching. Is is that something um, you know that can be taught? Is it something you can really communicate to somebody? And and if so, I mean, how how do you go about doing that? How do you go about uh, you know crafting uh, people that are going to take your best parts and hopefully not have any of your mistaken qualities? <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting. I I only arrived at you know the university as a professor professor, you know, like four years ago, and. Um, I was kind of surprised that it's just like, oh, now just go in there and teach. Mm-hmm. You know, that there is no – I mean, there are teachers' colleges, but right. that's more for elementary school and high school teachers. Yeah, right. And mm-hmm. they don't and really – right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. at, at professors don't really get that. And I'm sure there's a center for teaching if you were like, I want exercises for my sure. class. But you could go sit and, down and watch me teach. In and, front of, yeah, yeah I'm right. sure that's part of the, the – someone's paying for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but – what makes me i mean what makes me think about what works about teaching is when i look at the way that people try to uh, create computer platforms that accomplish the same job mm-hmm. it becomes really easy for me to see oh look at these compu- look at these computers they are teaching the subject again in terms of its utility Value. They're teaching it as these specific skills. What's missing here? You know, and what's missing, back to God, um, but what's missing is the, the experience of mimesis, hmm. you know, of one human being uh, modeling another human being. Right. So I'm not, you know, when I teach propaganda to my communication students, I'm not just teaching them, oh, here's Chomsky's model of propaganda. I'm showing them. 
I'm reenacting live my experience of look at this article, look at what this article's doing to me, mm-hmm. and look at how I'm going to take it down. And watch it and see not just the process, but see the visceral, right? The visceral. Mm-hmm. This is a human being, mm-hmm. you know, responding. And that to me is what teaching is. It teaching is a subversive activity. <laughs> teaching is 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 inviting young people into the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way Socrates taught. It was a conspiracy. Conspire literally means to breathe together. Mm-hmm. And you only do that in a space. You don't do that over udacity. Right. You, know, you, <laughs> right. you can't. Quora, right. right. You're in a room. The mm-hmm. door is closed. All right, let's talk. Mm-hmm. You know? I find it interesting. I started, uh, uh, not sure you're, you, you know this, but I'm a pilot in my spare time, which is very minimal nowadays. But but uh, and I, I wanted to continue the learning process, so I reached the highest level of you know kind of private pilot, and then I became a commercial pilot, uh, you know, which means I can you know charge you to fly you around the country uh, in a tiny little plane. But uh, but then the next level up to keep my education going, to keep you know perfecting the craft such as I can uh, of aviation, was to become a certified flight instructor. And right. I find it very interesting that the way that the FAA. In the Federal Aviation Administration, they have a very regimented uh, series on pedagogy and how you actually teach a student and bringing in things which you know, I'm sure from your field, but are very unknown in my field. Uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh-huh. you know, physical safety, emotional. You know, uh, then and then the only way that a student can learn. And and I was thinking. You know, this is what we're doing, and again, it's it's kind of the model of well, we're training in that case for a very specific job, uh, being a flight instructor. Right, that's a trade. You know, in a certain sense. Well, right, you're interfacing human beings with the industrial age. Exactly, you know? right, and 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 more, you know, more more so than almost any other uh, field. Checklists and checklists everything. and protocols and, yeah. and everything. But but they actually do get into. I mean, it's it's probably the only part of the federal. You know, I can't imagine the IRS has a section like the psychological safety <laughs> of your of your you know customers is really important. But but to be a pilot certified by the federal government to train other pilots. And I was thinking, you know, what if there was this applied to, you know, not just something where someone's physical safety and the safety of people on the ground is at stake, but what if you took that same kind of theory of pedagogy and applied it to diverse tasks such as, you know, learning how to solve Schrodinger's equations or, you know, how would you, you know, how, how can you really translate these the basic theories of, of the theory of teaching and education in a way that you can kind of uh, utilize this this accumulated received wisdom of education and actually apply it and would it do any good? In other words, right. is someone just an innate teacher? And this will dovetail to my final question about, about you know, the creative imaginative process. But um, but you, you you did kind of hit upon something. I once heard asked an artist, uh, uh, a painter, you know, how do you teach someone to be a good painter? And they said you can't teach it. But the first step is to is to paint all the great masters. You know, don't get out there and start thinking you're the next you know Muro or or or, or Pollock or whatever, and, and start off on your own. Cra- you know, but first get down the Picassos, get down yeah. the Van Goghs, and, and get down the, the the Renoirs, and then you can call yourself an artist. I mean, is it similar in your field? I mean, do you feel like by as you said, you know, kind of Laying hands on, or, or or you know, recreating is that is that process, or is it just too inherently, as you said, subversive, and that you know, subversions and conspirators don't lend themselves to you know. <laughs> uh, this, this. I'm probably irresponsible to some extent <laughs> to you know not living up to my obligation to learn more about pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially, you know, teaching in a public university, I end up with a college classroom where 
10% of the kids are functionally illiterate, mm. at least as I would. At a college level. Or yeah. Certainly by college standards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's scary. And so I start teaching them, you know, I started teaching sentence structure and mm-hmm. uh, subjects and predicates. And I wanted to get to the place where every student in the class could write a one paragraph email that had no mistakes and had four sentences that built on each other. Hmm. You know, to basic sixth grade essay format. Yeah, literacy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I couldn't get there hmm. with all of them. But then I start thinking, oh, so I'm not really a good teacher. I got to find out this. I got to learn what's the pedagogy of writing and all that. It's like, no. Because I, I'm not saying just push everybody through no matter what, but. That's not what I'm there to do. Mm-hmm. What I was there to do was to teach these kids propaganda and how it works and whatever and whoever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is propaganda on TV. This is propaganda in writing. If you don't know how to read, you're not really going to get much out of this right. unit. Um, but I'm I'm and perhaps it's it's inappropriate. But I I'm seeing myself as a special case hmm. that they brought me in at 50 years old to instill a communications program with some understanding of our transition to a digital media environment hmm. and that that is is so important and so central that spending 80 percent of my time on that and figuring out different ways to articulate what's happening to us to people in a way that they can understand it is more important. Mm-hmm. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment. And that there are people you can't read or write. There's a place on campus you can go mm-hmm. and get reading and writing. All I can do is tell you, you really, really, really need to go there mm-hmm. and do that. Now I'm going to do and the specialized thing that, that I do. Interesting. So the last part I want to talk about is just, um, you know, we're kind of, we, we typified this, and I think it was Marshall McClure, and maybe it wasn't, but but um, this notion of the two cultures and whether or not there's a third culture yeah. that could be sort of the, the symbiotic union of the two. And you've done work in fantasy and graphics and, and all sorts of other media. And I wonder what role does fantasy or, or science fiction, if any, play in both our uh, projections of the future in terms of technology and you know living with iPads and, and teleporters and things like that, but also does it contribute to our anxiety or collective neuroses of the future? Does does sci-fi in film in in uh, on the web and in journalism? Um, how does it how does it afflict us? How does it affect us? Is it as a net benefit? I think the the real purpose of science fiction is to interface the humanities with the sciences and. The people we're actually talking to as science fiction writers are 5 to 14 years old because mm. what we're doing is laying the templates. where We're putting in the architecture of mind through which they will make their decisions. So we were lucky to be raised with highly optimistic or at least balanced views of what technology could bring. So, you know, even at uh, 2001, to, in Arthur C. Clarke, I mean, what was the problem? They, the humans lied <laughs> to the other humans right. about what was going on on the moon. Mm-hmm. 
And when Hal looked at that and thought, most people don't even realize this, but when Hal thought about it, Hal thought, well, shit, if they're lying to the humans but telling me the truth, then I must be the superior yeah, life form. Right. Mm-hmm. That that's, that's it. That's right. And so what was what was Arthur C. Clarke really talking about there was, look, if we're going to move into this space, we've got to be honest and transparent mm-hmm. or we're going to magnify something really screwed up. So and, and is 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 2001 a nightmare or a, a good dream? I mean, it's a little of both. <laughs> but when that is the foundational myth for so many people going into the sciences, mm-hmm. we end up with guarded balances. Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? You know, now, you know, I, I was only recently thinking, well, gosh, science fiction has gotten so dark, yeah. so negative, so dystopian. you know, that it's it's tricky. On the one hand, we'll criticize a Disney for making that uh, – what was that movie with uh, – uh, Futureland, Adventureland, Tomorrowland. Oh, Tomorrowland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tomorrowland. You know, we criticize them because they've got George Clooney in, and they're basically saying the theme of that movie is don't think too much about climate change or you're going to make climate change happen. Right. <laughs> sort of the thing. Cheerful. Be optimistic. Cheerful Be, assessment. <laughs> yeah, but it was cheerful. Right. No, they, no, you know, no. They're all young people <laughs> and believe that you as a you know 11-year-old Pakistani refugee can stand in the field and come up with the solution to the bioengineered future or whatever it is. Um while we we resent that kind of capitalist expansionist optimism, it's like doesn't acknowledge. On the other hand, we better put forth some narratives for how things can work mm-hmm. for a positive human future, or what is the what what are, what is the structure of these young people's brains going to be right. when they get your job? Exactly. Wow. Well, a fascinating way to conclude uh, this this really wide-ranging and, and just uh, so interesting conversation with Douglas Rushkoff, author of Present Shock and most recently Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. And his newest book uh, was the forthcoming Team Human, uh, which will be published by Norton. Yes, yes. by W.W. Norton. W.W. Norton. And based um, on the, the the beloved podcast of the same name, mm-hmm. you can go to <laughs> teamhuman.fm. And listen to wild stories of the human <laughs> potentials. <laughs> and people, if they're interested in following you on Twitter, your uh, Twitter handle is Rushkoff at Rushkoff. And your website is Douglas Rushkoff. No, just oh, Rushkoff.com. Rushkoff. Very simple. I got the Rushkoff word pretty early. much everywhere. You yeah. got it all. Not late. that many. <laughs> That's right. It's been a pleasure and a real rush to interview you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Into the Impossible, a podcast of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. We'd like to thank our guests, Antonio Garcia Martinez and Douglas Rushkoff, as well as to acknowledge our generous patrons and sponsors, including Viasat Inc., members of the Founders Orbit, and the James B. Axe Family Foundation. Your support is much appreciated. To find out more about the Clark Center and our other exciting projects, programs, and research, as well as how to support our mission, please visit imagination.ucsd.edu. Audio production is by me, Patrick Coleman, produced by Patrick Coleman and Brian Keating. And thanks to everyone who's been listening and sharing the podcast. Please continue to do so. We really appreciate it. And uh, if you're local, be sure to check out our website for some exciting upcoming events. Thanks. Thanks.
The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one.